going to be in 2 Thessalonians this morning. <clears throat> As we resume going through the letters of Paul to the Thessalonians. This week and next week, and then we will um, jump into our resurrection study. So we're looking forward to that. Now it's been almost two weeks since uh, Vladimir Putin and his Russian military began attacking and invading the sovereign nation of Ukraine. And in that time, a lot has happened. Russian missiles have repeatedly hit civilian targets, such as the recent destruction of a children's hospital in Mariupol, which is a Ukrainian port along the northern edge of the Black Sea. As a result of the attacks, the city of almost 500,000 residents is currently without water and heating, and food is scarce. Uh, that's what its mayor, and I'm, I don't know if I'll say this right, hopefully, Vadim Bochenko said. Uh, he was appealing for military help, and then he added that we are simply being destroyed. As of Friday, over 1,500 non-combatants have been injured or killed in the violence a number that continues to steadily climb with each passing day. Now, the day after it all began, a well-known pastor uh, by the name of Greg Laurie, some of y'all may have heard of, he's of Harvest Christian Fellowship in California, he took to social media claiming that this was the fulfillment of prophecy and a sign of the end. <clears throat> On Monday of this past week, televangelist Pat Robertson echoed that viewpoint, claiming that Russian President Vladimir Putin has been compelled by God to invade Ukraine. He went on to suggest that Putin intends to use the Ukraine as a staging ground for an all-out assault on Israel, bringing about the Battle of Armageddon that dispensationalist preachers have been predicting for the past 70 years. And I can remember when Russia first became sort of the focal point of these kind of predictions during the height of the Cold War during the 1980s. I remember Christians going on and on about Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who was the leader then, and he was the Antichrist, and they would point out the mark on his forehead being the mark of the beast. I never fully understood that. Um, as it turns out, Gorbachev was not the Antichrist, or, or at least not the one the predictions made him out to be. Uh, predictions from folks like Pat Robertson, who claimed that Gorbachev was at the forefront of a one-world government that was being formed at the time. That also never really came to fruition, uh, but for some reason, Christians kept listening to Robertson and others like him who made such claims. Even as they adjusted their timelines every few years and continued to make erroneous predictions. Now, I'll be honest here. I don't know if what we're seeing is the beginning of the end or not. I have no idea. I know it must feel like it to the people in the Ukraine, where their lives are in danger at every turn. But I also know that when Hitler began rounding up Jews in concentration camps and launched an all-out offensive against the rest of Europe, that it must have felt like the beginning of the end then as well. We all know that in Matthew 24, 23-27, Jesus said that if anyone says to you, 
look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Seems like Jesus wanted his followers to be skeptical, right? To be discerning. To not just believe everything they hear and be in a state of panic all the time about what was going on. To weigh the facts and consider the events, but ultimately to understand that no one knows when he will return. No one. That's important. And yet there are numerous passages in the writings of the New Testament where we come across language of the return of Jesus and the events that will both lead up to and follow his return. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, uh, these two letters, they're some of the earliest writings of the New Testament, and yet they unmistakably address these realities and how believers should live and act as a result. Now today we're going to look at the meat of this second letter, where Paul gives some details about what he sees on the horizon and what the Thessalonian believers should be doing about it. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and of our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand Firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May God bless the reading of his word. It immediately becomes clear as we begin chapter 2 that these believers had some questions about the return of Jesus and what all would be involved. And it seems from Paul's answer that there were claims floating around that the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus had somehow already taken place and that the Thessalonians had missed it. It's a, it's a daunting task, honestly, to peel back the layers of how this misunderstanding came about. But we have to remember, this all took place in a time when the news wasn't on a 24-7 cycle in everyone's living room, right? Everything was pretty much word of mouth back then, especially amongst the common people. So some folks made a claim that Jesus was returning based on some event they thought fit the description. It's entirely possible that information convinced some folks who then believed they had somehow missed it. In our day and time, we have folks like Pat Robertson regularly linking some event or another to the end times and claiming that this is it. The difference between then and now is that we have worldwide media coverage of various sorts and can quickly discern the veracity of such claims, especially when they fail to come about. But there are still believers who get sucked into this kind of end-of-the-world hype. And for some reason, many of the preachers who are responsible for these sorts of nonsensical claims are never held accountable for all the times they get it wrong. Many still have thriving ministries with television and radio and other assorted media outlets for their teachings. And as believers, I think we should heed what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. We shouldn't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by such claims. And above all, we should not let anyone deceive us, whether they meant to or not. But this includes the preachers who make a good bit of money from their media and writing books, as well as our family or friends who may have been sucked into such nonsense for whatever reason. And I'm not saying we can't trust anyone, just that we need to use discernment and caution. Because as much as the New Testament contains about the return of Jesus, it's incomplete. There's plenty we don't know, most specifically the date. And even though we live in a world with 24-7 coverage of just about everything, it has also become increasingly clear over the years that all of it is fueled by one agenda or another and can only be trusted to the extent that we understand those agendas. Now in verse 3, Paul gave the Thessalonians a bit more detail on the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord as he understood it, speaking in sort of a prophetic way, and in that sort of uh, moving three-dimensional painting sort of way that we talked about with the prophets not too long ago. Paul then said that there were specific events involved. First, there was going to be some sort of rebellion. And in the Greek, the word he used there is apostasia. 
uh, we may recognize the word apostasy, right? And that basically this word is a compound word made from the prefix apo, which means away from, and the suffix histemi, which means to stand. Properly, it implies standing away from where one previously stood. In other words, it means a departure, possibly even a desertion of a post. And Paul was referring to those within the church who had left the teaching they received from Paul and his team. Those who had once stood with the Thessalonian believers, but had walked away and now stood elsewhere. This isn't really about them losing belief so much as it is about altering their belief to fit other information. In other words, they still believed, but the focus of their belief and their allegiance had changed. Now, Paul went on to describe this further in the next several verses in terms of a man of lawlessness. In fact, your Bible may even have that as sort of the, the subheading above the chapter, the man of lawlessness. Now, the word Paul used there is anomia, which means lawlessness or iniquity, disobedience, or even sin. In other words, someone who acts in opposition to the will of God. And in this particular case, Paul included a couple of other defining details. That this person would not only oppose and exalt himself against God and the worship of God, but would enter the temple in Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be God. Many have read this text and their minds have just raced, right? Looking at every current world leader as a possible fit. Who's it going to be? We have to remember that Paul was writing in the first century to a first century audience probably sometime between uh, the years 49 and 51, right in that window, which means this would have to have made sense to them somehow. Now, interestingly, there is a precedent for what Paul was describing here. In the year 40, just several years before this, Emperor, uh, Roman Emperor Gaius Caligula began introducing policies and proclamations linking his political role with the worship of himself as a god. There had nearly always been the worship of Caesars, a sort of a cult of Caesar, but it had always been relegated to worshiping them after their deaths, as if only then had they sort of ascended to divinity. But Caligula changed that, and he did so brazenly. He had a sacred area set aside for his worship in the port of Miletus and had two temples erected for his worship in Rome itself. He also removed the heads of various statues of gods and then replaced them with his own. In addition, he took the title of the new sun and represented himself as the sun god on coinage of the time. Late in his reign, during a good bit of unrest in Judea, Caligula decided to erect a statue of himself in the temple of Jerusalem and had a massive gilt brass statue of himself uh, created and then it was being shipped by boat across the Mediterranean. A fun side note here, uh, for those who don't know, gilt brass has a gold veneer on the 
outside, uh, but it's brass. It's just covered with gold sort of plating. And so it makes it look like pure gold when it really isn't. So it seems like Caligula was undermining his own divinity there. Uh, anyway, as it turned out, Caligula was murdered by a group of conspirators before the statue ever arrived, and it was never set up in Jerusalem in the temple. But this is clearly the kind of thing that Paul envisioned in his description. He was clearly drawing from this very idea. And it's as if he was sure that, well, this might not have happened with him, but it's bound to happen at some point, right? It's going to happen again. Somebody will do this. And, and he thought that it would be a signal that the day of the Lord would follow, that everything would sort of be joined together, that, that surely the Lord would not allow that without something major coming of it. Because whatever, whatever the vision was that God had given him, whatever specifically that Paul had seen or been shown or whatever, Paul would have understood it in his own specific context, right? which was that of a first century Jew who looked to the temple in Jerusalem as the symbol of Jewish identity. It contained the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat of the one true God. And so as far as he was concerned, he was still a Jew. And the people that were coming, this was part, still part of the Jewish tradition to believe in Messiah and follow him in the temple be part of that would have to be at the center of whatever God was going to bring about as far as he was concerned. And I think Paul was trying to understand and relate the sort of moving painting idea that we talk about uh, that he was seeing concerning how all of this would come about. He pulled together the idea of the return of Jesus with the coming catastrophe which he saw befalling the temple, seeing the two as connected. And in a very real way, they were. Not, not that Jesus has returned, not that he returned when Titus Vespasian desecrated and destroyed the temple, setting himself up as sort of a god in the temple before destroying it. Uh, it it's not that we somehow missed it all, right? Well, like the Thessalonians. But that in the destruction of the temple, we see brought to an end what began when the veil was torn from top to bottom. The temple would no longer be the marker of identity for those who believe in Yahweh. Jesus had taken the place through his sacrificial death and resurrection. And he promised that once he took his seat at the, on his throne at the right hand of the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit. And we know that that happened at Pentecost. See, Paul and the Thessalonian believers were living in sort of that liminal space between the coming of the Holy Spirit and the destruction of the temple. And Paul was sort of seeing all this and tying all these together, these ideas together with the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus. And he was also still looking at the ancient story of the Exodus and drawing from it a picture of what the new Exodus might look like. Now in the Exodus story, Yahweh delivered his people from their slavery to Egyptian oppressors and led them to the promised land. In the new Exodus, he would do the same, only this time it would have a permanent effect. And Paul connected these dots to the events he saw on the horizon and was trying to encourage the Thessalonians to wait and trust in the Lord 
that when things got crazy, which they're about to do, their Savior would be with them. In verses 11 and 12, Paul went on to draw another parallel to the Exodus story. In that version, the Pharaoh made a string of defiant choices in opposition to the will of God for his people. And he repeatedly hardened his heart throughout the process until finally God hardened his heart once and for all. As though God was making it clear that if this is what you want, this is what I will give you and everything that goes with it. In this letter, Paul pulled that idea forward, claiming that those who refused to stand with God's people, especially those who stood, who had stood with them, but had moved away by altering their beliefs and allegiances, that for all who made a string of defiant choices in opposition to the will of God and repeatedly hardened their hearts throughout the process, God would finally give them exactly what they wanted a delusion that they would follow to their end. And this is such an important lesson for us, and just as it was for the Thessalonians, because we live in a time when there's so much going on and so many voices trying to tell us what it means. It can be very easy to get led off track, easy to get distracted, but Paul's point to them has essentially the same meaning for us, and it's this. Don't get caught up in all the things going on and get let off track. Don't let all the craziness cause you to lose focus on what matters, which is living like Jesus. No matter what else is happening, keep loving each other. Keep leaning into mercy and grace. Keep practicing forgiveness. Keep proclaiming that Jesus is the risen and rightful King of all creation. Don't leave the kingdom way for some other way. Don't leave here to stand over there. Stand firm. The Greek word Paul used to describe this in verse 15 is steko which means to stand fast, to stand firm, to persevere. This literally stands in opposition to the group Paul described in verse 3, who had left or departed, those who deserted their allegiance to Jesus in favor of allegiance to someone or something else. Paul knew that the Thessalonians were facing serious Turmoil, and that it could potentially tempt them to renounce their faith as it had others from their group. And he wanted to encourage them to stay true to what they had committed themselves to. The Thessalonians, they faced all manner of political upheaval and persecution, even death, just as Christians all over the world do today like the Christians who are suffering in Kiev, Mariupol, and other Ukrainian cities right now as the senseless attacks continue. Their livelihoods have been destroyed. Their lives are at risk. Many have lost family members or friends along with their homes. And yet the voice of God is speaking to them just as it did to the Thessalonians through Paul. 
And it's the same message we should be hearing from our text this morning as we sit here in relative comfort, even if things aren't what we think they should be in our own country. It's simple. Stand firm in the faith. Don't let the situation around you rattle the gift that you have been given. Don't let circumstances alter where you stand in terms of the will of God and the life you have been called to live. Whatever happens in foreign affairs, whatever happens in our election cycle, whatever happens in our economic policy, whatever happens in our culture, stand firm in the faith. This was Paul's primary message to the Thessalonians, and it's for us and Christians all around the world throughout all of history. It's the same message. Our calling isn't to get caught up in the plans and purposes of power and empire and all the shifting that, that goes on there. Our calling is to keep our eyes on Jesus and to follow him in his clear desire to continue establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Paul was thankful for when he mentioned them obtaining the glory of the Lord in verse 14. This small group of believers were among the first fruits of what God was doing in their city. And that makes me wonder, what if we are the first fruits of what God wants to do here in Marathon? I know this church has been here for over 100 years and that it has a fascinating history. I also know that some of you have been around for a lot of it. I won't name names. But still, what if we are standing on the edge of something new? Something God wants to do through us here in this place. What if God wants to sort of change the landscape of our town through us just like what happened with the Thessalonians. Are we up for that? We can't keep our eyes on the past when God is moving forward. We can't get distracted when God has called us to love and forgive. And if we aren't willing to continue doing what God has called us to do here isn't that the same as standing somewhere other than in his will? Paul's words to the Thessalonians are as applicable to us as they are to Christians in the Ukraine and everywhere else right now. Even as we pray for them and recognize that they are going through much more difficult times than we are, the calling remains the same. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Carry out the Great Commission by making disciples. And live in such a way as to reveal what it means for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the essence of the blessing Paul offered in verses 16 and 17. He asked that the Lord who brought us comfort and hope through grace would establish us in every good work and word. It simply means that everything we say and do would be in service to Jesus and his kingdom. That we would be busy talking about and living like him. 
that we would consistently be interacting with each other and the people of this town with the gospel so that people will hear and be drawn to Jesus. And I can say right now, I know of a lot of problems in this town. And some of you know plenty of them too. And there are hurting people all around us and needy people all around us. There are people who need the love and forgiveness and mercy and grace that only Jesus can give. We cannot turn a blind eye. We are here for a purpose and the people of this town desperately need what the Lord has given us even if they don't know it. So let's take heart and be encouraged. Let's not let ourselves be led off track by all the distractions that try to pry our focus away from what we've been called to do. Let's stand firm in the faith and face whatever comes our way, knowing that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be with us and that He will not let us down. We pray for you.